Welcome to this special edition of the IWI CFI Trainer.net podcast. Today, we're going to meet the newest IWI Investigator of the Year, Andrea Buchanan. She is an Assistant Fire Marshal and the Supervisor of Fire Arson Investigations for the Alexandria Fire Department in Alexandria, Virginia. This spring, Assistant Fire Marshal Buchanan was presented with IWI's Investigator of the Year Award for her work on the Southern Towers Fire. IWI gives the Investigator of the Year Award annually to an individual who has shown outstanding achievement through the use of professional expertise in both the criminal and civil fields of arson control. Assistant Fire Marshal Buchanan is with us today to talk about the Southern Towers case, where her determination led to the arrest of a dangerous and somewhat unexpected serial arsonist who was terrorizing a high-rise apartment building. Welcome, Assistant Fire Marshal Buchanan, and thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome. So why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about this case and how it developed, and then what led to the arrest of the responsible party? The Southern Tower Complex is a uh, high-rise complex uh, constructed in the 1960s. It's a, a total of, uh, I believe, five uh, high-rise residential buildings. Um, they're concrete in construction, and they um, have no uh, sprinkler systems and manual fire alarm. Um, what started the case was... Um, I responded for a report of a fire in the hallway. Uh, fire was set in the carpet, small, um, probably the size of a uh, cantaloupe, if you can think of that, in circumference. Uh, but it was in the middle of the hallway and in the middle of the night. Um, and looking at that and knowing that we had no sprinkler system, I, um, I took notice of it and did a complete origin and cause report and started um, doing an investigation, speaking with the folks on the floor where the original fire started. Um, due to the fact that it's uh, 1,500 people in the single building that we were dealing with, um, most of them are um, new to this country and have very limited English skills, um, older residents and residents with young families. I felt that there was an urgency in this because I felt that there were going to be other fires. Um, and it was correct. We started having similar fires, but they were all small in nature. Uh, the fires were in the middle of the uh, floor on the carpeting. Um, they were in the trash rooms. They were pamphlets, um, bulletins on the board. So it started escalating, at which time uh, I really felt that I had a serial arsonist on my hands. Hmm. So... I mean, first of all, it's pretty insightful, I think, for somebody to take the concern that you did with small fires. But I, I understand in this situation with so many people in this building that that, you know, raised the alarm for you, I, I guess, even sooner. So what happened? Who did you reach out to? Um, of course, I got with my staff and told them any and all fires, no matter how small, um, we were to uh, handle them as if it was the largest fire. Um, I wanted a complete origin and cause um, done. Also, as a task force officer um, with the Falls Church ATF, um, I reached out to my federal partners. Um, I explained to them what I had, um, the unimaginable size of the building that I had, and I had really no set patterns. Um, at that time, uh, Falls Church 
uh, stepped in and the ATF were fabulous in giving me the manpower, um, the insights, the uh, equipment that I needed to continue with this investigation. So there was a lot of uh, work from what I understand. Can, can you talk about the process and, and how it built? What we did is we sat down and we decided that um, obviously we had to figure out a pattern. Uh, one of the greatest helps in developing that pattern was through BATS, the bomb arson tracking system uh, that the ATF has for um, fire investigative uh, departments throughout the country. Um, and due to their tireless work, they were able to establish a uh, pattern and what the most likely floors that they would hit on again. Once we started looking at that, um, we ended up getting with um, the uh, technical folks at ATF, and they were able to put in cameras that were just unbelievable. Due to the building being basically a concrete shell, um, everything putting a camera in, especially with the large amount of people and movement that goes through the building, we had to use some very um, uh, innovative ways to get in to get the cameras put up. Yeah, I can imagine that not only running wires would be difficult, but even transmission through those walls uh what was it, it was the transmission through the walls, getting them put up, and people asking questions as to who we were, and the noise, because some of the walls we had to drill, uh, use large drills um, to be able to mount the equipment um, within the available space. Uh, a lot of times we told folks we were with Cablevision to the electric company to whatever you can imagine. Also, we were able to obtain an apartment to which we utilized throughout the investigation, which became our base of operations. You had mentioned uh, that a lot of the folks that uh, were in this building had recently come to this country. Uh, tell me a little bit about the communication and the trust issues and, and what you had to do related to interviewing and surveillance. Well, what we found was um, a lot of the folks that had just recently arrived um, to the United States were from countries that there was a large distrust of the government and more so the police. Um, we had to work extremely hard in gaining the trust of uh, the families and uh, then the different demographics that we had to deal with. Some of the people that we interviewed um, did not allow men to interview the women and vice versa. So we had to be very cognizant of that and know what we were going into uh, prior to interviewing. And unfortunately, in the beginning of these fires, it was more of a nuisance to the people in the building than it was anything of fear. And we really had to put people on notice that if they saw something, they needed to say something to us. So quite a challenge, but you uh, overcame. Yes, we did. <laughs> That's great to hear. So tell me a little bit more about the case. Um, I'm thinking back to something related to uh, what I had read in, about the story uh, with a, a refrigerator box. Um, my biggest fear was that the fires were going to escalate, as was the ATFs. And uh, we did so much in-person, you know, on-premises on surveillance uh, to where we had an apartment that was ours for almost uh, eight months. Um, we, we had the keys uh, 
Uh, we went in there. When we would go in there, we would go in there in plain clothes, so nobody knew the difference that it was investigators. They just thought it was a new person living on the floor. In fact, we became friends with several people on the floor thinking we just lived there. And uh, in December, um, a uh, large refrigerator box uh, sitting outside the trash room in the elevator lobby and the main floor on the seventh floor uh, was ignited and caused uh, approximately $50,000 worth of damage, uh, filled the seventh floor full of smoke, and uh, it really put fear into uh, the residents of the building. I can imagine so, and uh, even you know, even more support for your earlier concerns, and, and I'm guessing that led to more support from folks around you? Yes, at that point, um, I was, in the beginning, um, I had tried to solicit, you know, dedicated personnel to this case and only this case. Um, at that point, we were going through severe budget cuts, and uh, I was looking at the elimination of pretty much half of the office, um, of the staff. Um, police were working, um, you know, with their budgets, and uh, it just wasn't um, at that time beneficial with the size of the uh, fires to them, you know, uh, cost benefit, you know, to uh, give that dedicated staff to me. It quickly changed when the uh, December fires hit. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I'm thinking, you know, during during all this time, it must have been amazing to you to have all this surveillance going on, know all of these people, be interviewing all these people, and still not have leads. It it was. It, it became, I, I will say, it became all-consuming um, for 10 months that, that this case uh, went. It, it was all-consuming, night, day. Um, it was any call whatsoever that went to that building where we were having the fires, I was notified. So if you had a kitchen fire, if you had any type of alarm that went there, I was being notified. So it was it was something to which um, uh, kept me on edge and kept our staff on edge, not knowing when the big one was going to hit, for lack of better words. You know, you mentioned the alarm. There, there was another issue with the alarm system um, that was relevant. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, the alarm system was a manual pull system, and very few people would use that system. And if the power went down or if they were doing maintenance, the system would be down. Um, obviously, as I stated prior, there was no um, sprinkler system within the building. Um, when we ended up making an arrest, the power was going to go down that night. And this had stressed that individual to the point that we were um, and still are convinced that the fire that we were dreading was going to take place. You, you had mentioned that you installed cameras um, yes. with the help of the ATF and some of their technical folks. And I'm wondering, could you, could you tell a little bit about what happened with those cameras, how it evolved? We had, um, when, after we had spoke with the analysts from uh the um, bomb arson tracking system program, 
they had given us three floors to which they felt that if the arsonist was going to hit, these were going to be the most probable floors. At that time, we placed cameras. We ended up putting cameras uh, on these floors. Um, and I believe it was the third floor, the fifth floor, and the seventh floor. The seventh floor is where we had our, our uh, base of operations apartment out of. And um, the we ended up having a series of fires. Um, one of the fires, the camera was set out of view, so they set the fire, but the camera didn't pick up the individual. The subsequent fire, um, the camera failed to operate. There was a uh, problem within the in the camera, and it just failed to operate. And then on the third, uh, when we uh, went ahead and put in a new camera, the ATF and their technicians, uh, we caught we caught the person on uh, camera. And who was that? It was a 70-year-old uh, female that lived on the seventh floor. Pretty surprising. Yes. Um, you know, we had, uh, uh, when we had started, we had gone through the um, uh, behavioral analysis unit in uh, Quantico, and it was believed that it was going to be uh, a male that was, um, you know, between a certain age and a certain age. And this is primarily what we were looking for. Everybody was a suspect, but, you know, you kind of started going towards that. And when we found out, you know, when we looked at, reviewed the film that night, uh, when we had the fire and we had a good capture on the film, on the camera, um, every one of our jaws dropped. Wow. So now you have this video. Tell us about confronting her. Well, on on the night of the fire, we had had the video. We knew who our suspect was. Um, we went down and interviewed her under the guise that uh, we were interviewing everybody on the seventh floor. Um, I had gone along with uh, special uh, senior special agent uh, Chad Campanell um, had a accompanied me to the suspect's apartment. Um, when we got in there and started to interview her, um, you know, we explained, you know, what we were looking for, did she see anything, and um, started asking her questions, what we, what she felt should happen to somebody who sets fires. And uh, we're recording the interview at the whole time. Um, she was very curious about our iPhones, and about cameras. And uh, Agent Campanelle explained to her that, you know, the iPhones had more computing power in them than the Apollo missions. And she was fascinated by that, and that the cameras that we used uh, were no bigger than the uh, tip of a pen, and that we had the person that set the fire, but we explained to her that we had to have the film developed, that it had to go to Quantico, so it wouldn't be till the next day Till we were able to get the film developed, even though it was video. And uh, the change in her became drastic. Mm. Um, she became very thirsty um, to where she had been very chatty, became very quiet. Um, her feelings of what should happen to somebody who sets fires changed drastically <laughs> uh, to one of uh, compassion versus, um, you know, prosecution. And uh, at that point, um, we left her. Um, 
we obtained uh, a search warrant and we left a uh, uh, investigators uh, doing complete surveillance on her a to see if she would fled you know flee set another fire or unfortunately something more drastic and uh, at that point we got a search warrant and obtained warrants for arrest uh, the next day and she pled she pled guilty to arson she admitted to dozens of fires that were set in the building um, and uh, said it was a as a way to relieve stress um, she had had multiple changes in her life um, retirement she was lonely the weather had been extremely bad that year so she wasn't able to get out and uh, every time they would do something in the building such as um, a power outage or cleaning the filters whatever that caused the stress and that was her retaliation towards the building was to set fires unfortunately the courts felt that at at that time she had turned 73 years old um, that for her to spend any time in jail um, was um, not beneficial to her at that age so she was uh, released and placed on probation uh, monitored probation wow that's very surprising, and and so how do we know that she can't do this again? We don't. Um, that's one of the concerns. Um, we obviously keep close contact with the probation office to see where she's at, uh, where she's living. Um, any fires that we have, you know, that that match anything towards what her um, previous fires were. You know, we're looking strongly into that, but um, there hasn't been any fires. We know where she's at, and um, she's evidently thriving well um, with the help she's getting and uh, whatnot. It it was a letdown, but, again, that's our judicial system, and and we we go with that as they do. As you see this case now, and after you had that, footage and you were so blown away uh, you and and your whole team as you say did did you look back and go wow I should have thought of this were there any moments where you you sort of looked back once once there was a connection where you looked back at some of you know the the burns that you had found and made some connection or absolutely um we had one night we had had a fire where we were investigating and uh, a fire and a fire was set less than 50 feet around the corner from us while we were investigating it and we had a chance to interview this individual um, on one of the evenings of a fire and um, we had written it up uh, Agent Campanell had, had written it up and we we kind of kept our eye on her. We did surveillance on her, but nothing came of it. And in the end, when it ended up being her, um, as we said, our spidey sense was right. Yeah. Um, we did. But I, I can only say through the course of this investigation, never be afraid to ask for help. You mentioned uh, budget cuts, but I mean... <laughs> There had to be uh, things that were great challenges in this case. What, what would you say those were, and, and are there things you would want to share with other investigators as to how you got by those challenges? 
I found one of the biggest challenges was for the executives with, within our department to listen, to, to understand what I had, to understand that, you know, what, what I was saying, what we were saying was just. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times when you're dealing with a fire department as a whole, um, and when there's budgets, unfortunately, the, you know, the, um, uh, non-operational, as they're called, um, components of a department are looked upon as being the first to be cut. Um, and there's a lot of times a lot of misunderstanding on what we do as fire investigators um, within a suppression um, department um, outside of a police department that handles it or a standalone fire marshal's office. Sometimes it, it's looked upon whether just small fires uh, you're overreacting, but it, it's not an overreaction. And you just have to stay resilient and keep on pounding away at it and say, there's something here, there's something here, and eventually they listen. Um, in our case, we were lucky. It was, you know, it was escalating, and we were able to stop it before it escalated to the worst case possible. Uh, but there were ups and downs in this case. Um, when the police department finally did come on board, there was somewhat of a power struggle as to who was going to handle the case. Um, but, you know, we stayed resolute, our team, and, you know, we were, um, and while we work wonderfully with our police department, absolutely wonderful, again, it's, it's our area is such a specialized area that a lot of people don't understand that you can handle it like a burglary. You can handle it as an auto theft or any other crime. It, it's specialized. That's an excellent point. Dozens and dozens of small fires over several months, and uh, and you want every one. And, you know, very possible that you saved lives uh, and awesome work. I, I'm, I'm thinking uh, that often, you know, investigators are praised for solving cases that involve huge losses or multiple fatalities or you know, with a lot of publicity, um, you've been honored by the folks at the IWI for solving a case where there was no catastrophic damage and no one was hurt. Um, you closed it before that happened. And, and I'm wondering if there are any takeaways that you want to share uh, in this case or specifically to serial arson. Stay resolute. If, if you feel that it's, it's, if it just doesn't seem right, 95% of the time it's not right. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to treat that small fire as if it's the largest fire you ever worked. Um, don't be afraid to do old-fashioned police work and knock on doors and speak to people. Um, don't be afraid to say, I'm at a brick wall. Where do I go from, there, from here? Um, there are going to be these ups and downs in a serial arson case. While mine, by far from what I've spoke to folks from across the country, have worked just major, major cases um, involving, you know, millions upon millions of dollars worth of damage and or loss of life. To me, 
I didn't want that to go here. I knew I had something. I had the belief and the support of my federal partners and my investigators in the office. And um, if I can just say, go run the course, you're going to hit brick walls, you're going to get frustrated, you're going to laugh, you're going to cry, um, you're going to think you're going to lose your mind sometimes, and you're going to be doubted and be prepared for that. But in the end, the the main goal is getting somebody that's setting fires off the street, getting them to stop. And if you can do that, it's a win. It's a win all the way around, whether they went to jail or not. She's no longer setting fires. And uh, 10 months of lost sleep, that night that we put her in jail was the best night of sleep I ever had. I bet it was. Andrea, thank you for joining us today, and congratulations on this well-deserved and hard-earned honor. Thank you. That concludes this podcast. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time on CFITrainer.net.